0: Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different guest about their experiences of this messy decade to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end. Because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. This series of 20 Not Something is sponsored by Swirls and Curls, your go-to luxury baked goods brand. Any of you who know me well will understand my infatuation with cakes and cookies, but what's even more impressive is when a brand can deliver top-quality first-class products which still taste fresh and delicious with a warm home-baked touch. Swells & Curls is a small business run by the lovely Kirstie and her beautifully decorated cakes and sugar cookies are the perfect gift for a partner, friend, family member or for just treating yourself. They are incredible value for money, look fantastic and taste even better. Head over to Swells and Curls on Instagram to feast your eyes and stomachs on their wide range of products and go and spoil yourselves and your loved ones this month with some truly tasty treats. Today is an extra special episode because I'm joined by the lovely Kirsty Worden, who is founder of our amazing sponsor, Swells and Curls. Kirsty began her 20s, as many of us do, studying for a degree at university. Excited to part from her difficult home life, Kirsty discovered a newfound freedom at uni, soaking up the social life, friendships and hangovers. However, due to financial difficulties, Kirsty made the decision to move home for her final year, thus commencing one of the biggest turning points of her decade. Returning to a chaotic and dysfunctional family home for her final year, Kirsty struggled with the move back to Preston, which only worsened when her younger brother got arrested and sentenced to prison for 17 years. It was a really tough time in Kirsty's life, but despite juggling the difficult relationship she had with her parents, the stress of the arrest and trying to study for her final exams, Kirsty managed to graduate from her degree at 23 years old. In 2009, Kirsty met her now husband, David, and the two of them saved up money before going travelling to Australia and Thailand traveling brought out a new side to Kirsty and taught her that any goal is achievable she realized just how much of her life she had control over and upon returning to the uk Kirsty had a new fire within her to secure a job and earn enough money to buy a house the one thing she wanted most discovering the world of recruitment Kirsty then spent eight years working her way up at service care solutions in preston then after returning from maternity leave to have her child ava kirstie moved to a bigger company in manchester with more opportunity for growth She spent her early 30s flourishing there. The money was great and the people were lovely. That is until last year when Kirsty, like many others, were hit hard by the global pandemic. She was made redundant and left feeling lost, anxious for the future and absolutely devastated. However, if Kirsty's twenties is anything to go by, it's that every dark, ominous cloud does have its silver, sparkly, rose tinted lining, or in Kirsty's case, icing. Lockdown gave Kirsty the chance to pick up baking again, something which she hadn't done for years. What began as a fun hobby has now turned into a fully fledged business, and seven months on, Kirsty has amassed over forty thousand Instagram followers, repeat business, and achieved a steady income. I have never met anyone more modest, driven and humble than this extraordinary talented baking queen. Kirstie's 20s journey is proof that even when faced with adversity and uncertainty, it's amazing what we can achieve when we just don't give up. Kirsty, welcome to 20 Not Something. Emma, that was so lovely.
1: I just, what an intro. I think it's hard when you, um, so hearing someone else speak so kindly about like me yeah that that was that was lovely thank you (laughs) Uh,
0: oh you're welcome thank you for being here honestly I'm so happy that we could do this yeah me too I think when you when
1: you messaged me and you you said you know can you feature on my podcast at first I thought I'll be honest I thought it was like some kind of clickbait (laughs) message I get so many on Instagram and um I just thought why why me especially listening to some of the guests that you've had on you've had some amazing amazing guests but no, thank you for asking me to, to do oh, it.
0: No, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. Um, I'll kick things off asking the same question I ask everyone. So Kirsty, what did you want most from your 20s decade?
1: So I think in, in the decades, you don't really know what you want. I think it's only like with many things in life when you have the chance to kind of reflect. Um, I would say I was Searching for security, um, I think that was really, really important in my twenties, and um, not not financially. Um, I think just with um, security within myself, um, I've I've struggled a lot with self acceptance, self worth, and not feeling good enough. And I think looking back, my twenties was definitely a journey in um, feeling secure in myself, in my career, um, and in some element with finances with money but um you know uh, buying my first house and having the security of a of a home um mm. yeah I think I think I would say security
0: mm. yeah that's such a good one we've never had that before but yeah. it's so true and it, it covers so many as you said avenues as well um yeah really interesting your your note to me was so honest and raw and you know you'd been through an awful lot as a child and a teenager previous to to your twenties. Mm. And I just wanted to ask you how you think those early experiences have shaped your perspective of adulthood? Yeah. Um I think it's so it's so hard and so complex.
1: Um your childhood is will undoubtedly shape you forever. Um and mm. you know most people um get the opportunity to have a fairly normal childhood. so therefore not necessarily they are then going to be a normal in quote adult, but they have a good a, a good foundation, a good platform. and I think um, my childhood really shaped me in a way that I've I've learned the true kind of meaning of resilience um Mm. when I was a child I developed a lot of my own coping mechanisms to get through kind of what I was experiencing And, and that coping mechanism has really kind of followed me through my adulthood and what that was was um I would tell myself that it's not as bad as others so no matter what would happen to me or what would happen to those around me I would always tell myself other people have it worse. And even when I lost my job in June, um, I was devastated, but um, I had a couple of days that were, were really hard and were, really tricky. But then mm-hmm. I pulled myself through and and would and said to myself, there are families out there where both parents or both people from the same household have, have lost um, their job. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say that. I'd say resilience and just kind of, um, you know, always trying to to look at them the, the positive yeah, of life.
0: Sure. <laughs> yeah yeah which is such a valuable lesson to learn I think it's interesting also bringing up you know other people have it worse because there is a sense that you should you shouldn't compare yourself to other people's experiences or say oh but somebody else has it worse because then you don't feel like you're allowed to feel pain mm. um and I, th- I I struggle with that as well, because, yeah, you know, we're all going through absolute shit and people in the media, it's like, oh, we're all in this together, but we're not because everyone's having a totally different experience. Um, but it's important to recognise, it is important to recognise, as you say, you know, people have it worse, but also that it is OK to feel the way that you feel as well.
1: A hundred percent. And I think, again, mm. this is something that I probably um, did a lot in my 20s in that, I would feel resentful sometimes to people who I thought didn't have any real issues or any real reason to feel a type of way about a situation. Being that you know they might Mm. they might feel depressed about something to me that would feel very irrelevant. And I I definitely experienced that in my twenties. And I think my late twenties, my early thirties. You know, I'm 34 in March. I discovered a a different way of thinking in that to somebody their mountain is your molehill and Mm -hmm. um, I think if you think of it like that if you if you don't put everybody in the same box so you can't say you know this person doesn't know what true depression is like what how could they you know they have a good job they have money they have a good family Mm -hmm. I if you categorize everybody like that you're not you're never gonna really understand I think your own pain as well but also just life isn't easy for anybody it's how you Mm -hmm. deal with it and how you choose to um learn from things that have happened to you uh if that makes any sense at all yeah
0: yeah no it absolutely does It, it really does um touching on your final year of uni then, uh, obviously you had some financial difficulties and had to make that really tough decision to, to come home. Um, I was wondering if it's okay with you to maybe talk a little bit about that year and that transition back to home life and and what got you, what got you through?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, um, so I, when I was at uni, um, the, the way kind of finances were worked out with loans and grants was, I can't remember the terminology, but graded on like your, um, family's income. And my stepdad was in the army at the time. And I basically, I received a loan and I received a grant and it just wasn't enough in my, in my second year really to kind of see me through. And I did have a, a part-time job, but with, with, with uni life, you know, you don't really have time to work because you do want to enjoy the social side. So I just made poor decisions with money at the time. And um, I kind of was in my overdraft and um, I, I couldn't, I just remember, I couldn't pay the final part of my um, rent to my landlord, which is really bad thinking of it. And you think the things that you spend your money on in your younger years, you know, going out and clothes take priority over (laughs) basic needs like food um I never had food in my cupboard I lived it's a running joke with my uni friends now that I lived for breakfast lunch and tea was uh packets of super noodles um I know it was awful and so yeah I just there was no way going into my third year that financially I could look after myself properly um, with the money that I was getting from my loans and, and grants. And I didn't get any help from my parents. So, mm. um, you know, they didn't kind of sub- subsidize me in any way. Um, which, you know, I have always worked anyway from a very young age. So I, I, there was no expectation there anyway. But mm-hmm. so in my, in my third year, I made the decision to move home and, um, really from the start, it was, it wasn't great. Um, you know, my mum, Um, is and was at the time uh, an alcoholic Um, and I knew that going home that it was going to be it it was going to be tough Um, at the time she wasn't actually drinking so she had been sober for probably for the first time in my life uh, the longest period in my life she had been sober for and that was because She had been caught drink driving um, and part of her rehabilitation, she had to go through like a probationary uh, process and she had to meet with a counsellor. And in all honesty, from, uh, so I moved home, I think around May 2008 um, and it was actually quite nice um, because I, for the first time I was having a relationship with my mum and she was sober. Mm. Um, So it was, it was quite, it was quite nice um my stepdad uh lived in the house so there was me my brother my mum, and my stepdad um and over the summer I got a job I worked and I, I was paying back um overdrafts and credit cards and starting September 2008 my third year I was in a strong position really um
0: mm.
1: and then um so my younger brother um he was 16 at the time he had been in and out of, um, young offender institutions since probably the age of 12. Um, he just really struggled. Um, I think he, we, we obviously, just, there was four of us. We all grew up in a very chaotic, toxic, um, domestic violence house. And, um, again, I think my perspective of, of my house my home um was that I saw more than him because I was older but he really struggled he struggled at school he didn't fit in he was expelled and he had to go to um a school for behavioral problems um and I think no one really took the time to truly understand why he was acting out except for maybe social workers so my mum and my stepdad's approach to Christopher was um he would he would, my stepdad was abusive towards him physically. He would use physical, um, discipline to try and correct him because he was in the army and that's what he was like. Um, my mum's answer was alcohol and escape. So, um, he was just on a bad path. And in December 2008, he made the decision to break into a neighbor's house. Um, so this neighbor was in his 70s. He lived three doors down from us. Um, and he broke into his home in the night around, I think, around seven o'clock of the evening. It was dark. And this man caught him and a, a fight broke out between them both. And Christopher mm. left him in a, in a bad, bad way. Um, he had physically um, attacked this man trying to get out of his house. Um, And Christopher had entered through the garage and he wanted this man's car keys. Um, So Christopher left the man, he closed the curtains of this man's house and he came home back to the house with the car keys and he hid them in his room. And um, what unfolded was this man was taken to hospital and he died of his injuries three weeks later. Um, And, it took I think maybe a day for the police to come around and arrest Christopher um Christopher denied it for six months leading up to his court case um and it was really it was really 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 hard I think it was one of the hardest things I've been through um Mm. I remember kind of looking back and thinking it was the closest that I've ever felt to my heart being broken because he was my little brother um and for six months leading up to the court case, he denied it. And on the day of his trial, the first day of his trial, his solicitor came out into the courtroom and said, we've received um, a different set of instructions from our client in that he wants to plead guilty. So the court case changed from whether Christopher did or did not do the crime to whether he meant for this man to die, um, whether he went in with the t- intention to to you know, mm. for this man to die. And ultimately what happened was after the court case, um, Christopher was found guilty of murder. Um, and he was sentenced to 17 years in prison. So at the point of Christopher doing what he did, he was 16 and he was sentenced to 17 years and he is still in prison now. Um, so yeah, that happened right in the middle of, of, of my third year at university. And mm. then what transpired was my mum obviously went into um she, she relapsed and she started drinking and it was down to me to my role within the family was always the even though I wasn't the oldest I, a lot was always put on my shoulders so I mm. kind of had to be there mentally to, to support her mm. um so yeah it was it was really tough and so what I did was I I I just Failed. I failed miserably in my third year because what I tried to do was keep up with the work, keep up with the exams, and I just could not do it. So I ended up resitting my final year the year after, mm. um, which was the right thing to do. But at that time, there were so many times where I thought, "I can't do this. Like, I, I'm never going to be able to graduate. I'm just not in the in the right frame of mind." And to mm. to resit my final year was really hard because I. I kind of already felt like a failure for not do it, not being able to do it in my third year. So um, I was really proud, proud of myself when I graduated.
0: Yeah, God, what an achievement. And I, I can't even imagine what that must have been like to go through. Um, and I just want to thank you for sharing that with us because that's not an easy thing to talk about. Yeah. No. Um, and yeah, it, something really powerful that stood out in your note to me was, um, my twenties taught me resilience, determination and to not make excuses without the lessons I learned. Without a doubt, I wouldn't be where I am today. Yeah. And you know, what a defining year of your life. Um, what, what do you think that ignited in you for you to then go out into the world? Because then, you know, obviously you went traveling and you were determined to get this job and buy this house. And um, what sort of fi- fired that within you, do you think?
1: Um, So, again, I think my whole life and what I try to avoid when I talk about my childhood is, um, and this is no disrespect to anybody, um, is I I don't ever want to play myself as a victim. So I Mm. like to present myself as somebody that bad things have happened to me, but I am not a victim of those those things, I mm. and again, without being cheesy or cliche, but I, I, I'd rather be a survivor of life than a victim of life. But that's just my personal preference. So, growing up, I, my stepdad. So my mum married my stepdad when I was three, and he was in the army. He was a he was a soldier on the front line, in the infantry, and he, um, he's very heartless. He's very cold, and I would be told by him and my mum as well at times that I. Um, I think I'm better than anybody. I, I think I'm better. Uh, I think I'm better than them. They would always mm-hmm. put me down. If with my schoolwork, my college work, and my uni, it, my driving force to better my education really came from myself. Um, mm-hmm. They had no interest in my um, in my schoolwork um, and um, all my all my hobbies, all my my ambitions. There was no real interest there. And I remember my stepdad dropped me off at uni once and as we were driving through Ormskirk, there was, there were bins of, I vividly remember this, there were bins of spilling out, you know, alcohol bottles and he was disgusted by it and he said, you know, you, you're spending all this money and you're going to end up, you'll probably end up get, getting a job in McDonald's. Um, and that was really kind of, you know, it's like a stab to the heart when, especially a parent, mm. Um, kind of puts you down in that way and he would tell me things that I would never earn as much money as he would earn That I would never own my own house and he really did a very good job of belittling me from a a young age right up until um, we stopped speaking and that became my driving force um, Mm. because without that without those words without his actions and his approach to me I wouldn't I I felt especially in my twenties, I had something to prove to him. So when I mm. bought my house, I thought, you told me I wouldn't do this, so I've done it. Now mm. in my thirties, what I've realized is I don't need to prove anything to anybody, especially them. What I need to, to do is, is is prove it to myself, but also just find that balance of wanting to do things because I want to do them and, and feeling proud of the things that I've achieved because it's important to me and not for them because otherwise I'm going to be living in that kind of shadow and that negativity and bitterness the rest of my life
0: for sure yeah and that's so amazing for you to have realized that because it must just be so good to relinquish that that feeling of that you yeah. you need to prove yourself it's just about yeah. you now and that that's really powerful
1: yeah really, really powerful. powerful and you know it's only something that I've I've really kind of learn in in the last couple of years I don't think I would have been able to do that in my 20s um Mm -hmm. just I think the beauty of life and age is that you do get to a point where the naivety of the world kind of slips away and you kind of think right okay this is what life is about and I think I've got I've got there definitely in my 30s um whereby I don't need to prove anything to you anymore you know you're not Mm -hmm. in my life and Mm -hmm. I and I'm 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 a better person for it yeah
0: Oh yeah, amazing. Um moving on to talk about David then. Obviously mm-hmm. you guys met when you were quite young and you're still together now with the yeah. beautiful Ava. Um and you said that you met when you were what, twenty two, was it? Yeah. Or, yeah. Um and I was curious to ask you because I think in our twenties a lot of people are very uncertain when we meet the one yeah. um so early on because there's this sense that you should be keeping your options open or yeah. exploring different avenues or, um, did you, did you have any doubts, um, when, when you met or when things were starting to get serious or, or did you just sort of go with it? You just no, knew?
1: poor David. I, I just felt so sorry for <laughs> him. <this thought because laughs> I was just, I think because of, again, because of, of, of like my mum and stepdad, their relationship was, was, awful awful like he was very violent and abusive towards her and us and you know I grew up not really understanding what a um, healthy relationship should look like Um, Mm. even though I knew I knew deep down obviously that that what was going on wasn't right so I was very protective of myself and when I met David um, so um, my best friend actually went my best friends went to primary school with David and then secondary school so there's a real kind of um, they knew like his background and I remember after meeting him, they were all saying how amazing he was and how his like, family is so nice. And for six months we dated and I he, I kept putting out these signs that I wanted to kind of make it official. And this was before like obviously um, Facebook and Instagram. So it was just like mm. texting and it was back in 2009. And um, I kept putting out these singles, signals to him that I wanted something more serious. But at the same time, I was petrified. I just was very scared of of kind of letting any sort of, um, without being a cliche, the barriers down to him. So I, Mm -hmm. after six months, I told him that I didn't want anything and he was devastated. And, but then I just kept finding my way back to him. And I remember in the December of 2009, he had said to himself that if nothing changes, he's going to have to kind of break away because he was getting to the point where he kept Uh, he would like whisper to me that he loved me but not really kind of say it out loud and I just wasn't there yet I know I know I feel really bad because I just wasn't there yet Um, and I didn't think I would be and then in um so yeah in the December it was getting close to Christmas and I just um I think one of my friends had said to me like you know what are you so scared about and I just was scared of being hurt I think that was the main thing Mm. and I um I think it was on the 20th of December we remember this day I, I it was me that said to him like I'm ready to kind of take the next step and that I love you and and then yeah 10 years oh no 12 oh. years 12 years later we yeah, we're married and we've got Ava <laughs> that
0: makes me so happy it's I like know. a proper love
1: story <laughs> yeah it was and I mean he has and to be fair this is David all over he has a lot of patience <laughs> <laughs> and um I think I I always knew like we are um you know, we are just so opposite, but we have one thing with me and David is we have very similar morals and values. His his family, how he was raised, his family is the complete opposite to mine in the sense that they are incredibly supportive, loving, nurturing. His mum is just like my idol in terms of what to be like as a as a mother. Um, mm. and I think but we still we, strangely we have the same values and, and morals and we just have always wanted the same things and you know it, um he he is the reason why I am the way I am today in that mm. he's helped me heal a lot um he's given me he's given me confidence and he's really built my self-esteem up um yeah he's amazing
0: (laughs) oh oh, that's so lovely that's so lovely um and obviously you guys went traveling together as well and I know in your notes me you said that traveling was the sort of time in your mid-20s where you really sort of took hold of your life and realized all of the things that you you could achieve um why do you think that was What, what what sort of brought that on do you think
1: I think again just that um reminder um of being told that I can't do things Um, Mm. and you know again growing up we traveled a lot because my stepdad was in the army but we never did any family holidays or anything like that so I always wanted to go abroad the first time I went I think I have this in my notes the first time I went abroad embarrassingly was to Magaluf when I was 21 I think I was (laughs) that was my first ever holiday um but yeah I just wanted I knew there was more out there and um, mm-hmm. for me, I think my mum especially would always, um, have kind of, uh, ambitions and goals and she would never follow through with them. And one of them obviously was to stop drinking. Um, mm-hmm. and I think again, another thing that I, I kind of learned growing up was that, um, not to kind of give up on that so if you do want to do something to follow something through um and I'm really big on that if I commit to something I have to see it through to the end and I think Mm. it's because I've made like an internal promise to myself that you're going to do it so I always have to finish something and I get a little bit panicky sometimes about things if someone promises me promises me something I kind of hold them to it and if they don't fulfill Mm. it it can sometimes really it matters to me uh, again as I'm getting older I'm starting to realize not to kind of judge everybody's expectations <laughs> and kind of mm-hmm. how everyone meets the expectations by by yourself um but yeah I think um the traveling was just a dream and I just was so so I remember getting to Australia and just because I traveled out to Australia on my own to meet David so it's the first time that I ever i'd ever been on a plane and i went over to australia on my own um and i remember getting there and just feeling like i was in a dream that sounds really sad but um i just couldn't believe i'd I'd done it and i saved it up myself i you know it was it was just unreal it was it was a real Mm. kind of game changer with how i think my 20s played out me doing that it was an amazing experience and i was so so lucky and grateful that i got to do it with david as well
0: yeah, because everyone says, um, "Oh, traveling with a partner makes or breaks you," but clearly, clearly made you guys. So. Oh yeah, we and it, and then it
1: ignited just the traveling bug in us both, and we've just been mm. to the most amazing places. We took Ava when she was nine months old over to Australia and Singapore, oh. and you know, I hope, I hope to give her that um, that traveling bug because I think traveling just again without Banning cheesy, it just offers you something that that you can't get anywhere else I think it just just really Mm -hmm. kind of opens your eyes and broadens your kind of your your knowledge and your experiences beyond anything Yeah.
0: yeah for sure and then I guess coming back to the UK you got into recruitment and it was really lovely in your note because you said that you um you didn't really intend for a career you just wanted money to buy a house but actually (laughs) then that job you ended up getting unexpectedly turned into a career which you flourished in so that must have been really rewarding
1: yeah it was and you know again I just I was just very um you know the the pound signs I saw in recruitment when I first kind of um got into it because I wanted to buy my own house um and I studied criminology at university, and I just couldn't see kind of a career in that, really. So, um yeah, recruitment just started as as a, a job to earn money, and I I just became really passionate about it. But I uh, specialize in legal recruitment, so helping solicitors mm. at firms recruit for for staff, basically, and it's not necessarily the sector that interests me. It's the people just um, dealing with people. I think that's definitely where my strength is. Um, Mm. And I then went on to manage a team and I enjoyed that. And I think it was just, I was good at it and that, that really kind of um, transformed the way I thought about my job. Um, Being good at something, it kind of gives you the confidence and encouragement to want to do better. Um, But Mm. yeah, And I I mean, I still love recruitment. I definitely, I see it as my career. I think baking is my hobby. Recruitment is my career, but I'm just kind of taking a break at the minute. Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. Before we um, talk about last year, um, I just wanted to briefly touch on when you had Ava uh, in your note, which stood out to me was when you went on maternity leave and you said that you really struggled with it. Um, And I think it's really important to raise because I don't think it's, spoken about enough in regard to the difficulties that a lot of mums have when they leave work to have children. Um I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean it was so before Ava and my most that, you know, when they have the first, if you're um in a career, if you're in a job, I I remember saying, um, before I even got pregnant that I would probably only take three months off. <laughs> just really? vividly remember saying yeah because I just my my baby was my job um and I was just very very passionate about it and I remember thinking I I don't want to not work um and then that's in naivety uh, I remember one of my uh, work friends saying you say that now but you will change your mind and I remember thinking <laughs> well she she's saying that but I look like, I know um and during my pregnancy it it quickly became apparent that my organization wasn't geared up for um female managers especially to go on maternity leave there was no kind of process in place to manage it and I kind of got the sense that it was a little bit of a um a burden um Mm. there were things that happened and yeah it just wasn't managed properly and when I went off um I just had this awful anxiety that i was almost giving up something in like as a woman and again i don't want to play the woman card but you have to make choices when you become a, mm. a, a parent and it it kind of i dealt with that unfair like feeling like it was unfair that i had to do that um you know you mm. want to be at home with your baby and you want to you want to have the best of both worlds and i think as a society businesses are getting better at it but I don't think they're, f- they're fully there with kind of really um meeting the needs of mums wanting careers but also not wanting to to miss out on on raising their children um and not just mums dads as well um I, I think it's parents as, as, as a whole uh, you know we miss out on so much and I think if this pandemic has taught businesses anything it's that. You know, flexibility needs to be offered more, whether it's working from home, whether it's different kind of hours in a day, you know, mm. ultimately, if you're good at your job and you're passionate about your job, you will get the job done. It just doesn't, it just might not be that set nine to five hours or the step structure that that business wants you to kind of complete your job within, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it was it was it was really really eye opening having Ava, and I really struggled with it. And the worst thing for me before Ava would have been losing my job, a hundred percent. And then when that happened to me last year, again with most things, I just thought that anxiety that I felt was unnecessary because that has happened to me, and it's not the worst thing. <laughs>
0: Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting you raise that because I, I do that all the time. I think about the worst possible case scenario and things and think how anxious I or crap I'm going to feel if something happens. And then actually, when you're faced with that adversity, you realize that you can get through it and you can... Oh, yeah overcome it um which yeah is exactly what you did which leads us on to the launch of swirls and curls yeah. I cannot believe when you said to me that you literally had baked what twice before like yeah. you, you launched it that is insane because look at them they're like i can i can bait like that if i practice practiced for years
1: <laughs> <What>? <laughs> oh i know like my husband's like you're not doing this like someone else is doing this you're buying them from someone <laughs> and i think all my friends anyone that knows me and this is like genuine they were just in disbelief and they have been because before even ava i like, i found actually a, a, a picture that i sent to david um back in 2017 of a picture of our, our um, oven and like asking whether there was the right setting to turn it on. <laughs> just that makes me sound really dim. I know, but I just was not domesticated in the kitchen. I could not work the oven. I was awful. So um, I actually, so I started baking in 2018 in my uh, maternity leave and I baked, I throughout 2018, I had baked a little bit. I, I think I baked two cakes and, um, Some friends and some cupcakes and then I went back to work and in 2019 2020 I didn't really have the opportunity to bake uh, with going back to work and having Ava so Mm. when the pandemic hit um, I started baking again probably kind of I baked Ava's second birthday cake in April and I baked my uh, friend's um, little girl's cake in the March and then I did a few cupcakes and then yeah, I decided. I don't. I can't remember like the exact moment I thought. Do you know what? I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna start a baking business. I can't remember what, when it was, but the name oh, wow. came really easy. Um, it was the name. It was the Instagram page, and then it was registering the business. Um, in July. Mm. Um, and then yeah, here I am in 2021 <laughs> with a with a baking business. <laughs>
0: It's just mad how quickly it happened. And I mean, I can't, I can't imagine what being made redundant in general must feel like, but in a pandemic, like at that time, there was so much uncertainty. Yeah. Um, and the way that you just, you know, took full, I don't know, reins of the opportunity, yes. I guess. To, and just, and just went with it. It's, it's such a difficult thing to do because I think a lot of people, no judgment at all, because I've certainly done it, have almost used the pandemic as an excuse or been like, Oh, I've just wasted a year of my life. But at some point you do have to adapt, which is yeah. exactly what you did.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think just going off your point there, when you, uh, when, you know, people can be quite negative about the pandemic and with good reason. Like I, I understand mm-hmm. that. And I think getting to the end of this year, there was a lot on Instagram and Facebook about people saying, you know, I hope 2021 is a better year. And, and for me, I, I had a conversation with my husband on New Year's Eve and I, and I, and I said, I lost my job in this pandemic. I lost a job that I love and I started mm-hmm. a business, not because I wanted to, but because I, I, I need to, like my days I need to feel productive and proactive mm-hmm. I'm, I've got um as you can probably see on my uh, page I'm quite creative um and I needed something to kind of um focus on but I didn't want to sit on New Year's Eve and feel sorry for myself and think you know this pandemic's done this to me and you know mm-hmm. it, it's all been doom and gloom because I again I can appreciate others have re- lost a lot in this pandemic you know people have lost lives and it's an awful, awful situation mm. for every single person in this world to be in. But you have to you you know, you I d I didn't want to write off 2020. I got to mm. spend an amazing amount of time with Ava. I got to see her grow. She wasn't in nursery as much as what she would have been if I was working. I got to be at home and I and I and I got to I got to learn that I I don't know if that sounds right but yeah I got to I got to learn I had a hobby that I didn't even know existed I was, yeah. I was good at something that I didn't even know I was good at so I think mm. everybody can take positives out of it even if they have to look hard <laughs> like what yeah. was the positive out of it um, yeah. So yeah and it, and, yeah. It, and I think it taught us as well to enjoy the little things in life you don't need you don't need anything kind of fancy to to, to kind of be happy um it's just enjoying the
0: small things like hundred percent. Yeah. With your <laughs> I know. I will never take that for granted no. ever again. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Kirsty. Okay, we're going to go on to play Millennial sweeper now. Okay. Um, you know the rules, so I won't bother explaining it to you. I'll just hit you with the first quote. So, <clears throat> mindsets are just beliefs. They're powerful beliefs, but they're just something in your mind, and you can change your mind.
1: Oh, 100%. I love that because mm. I, it's just, it's so funny because I speak about this a lot with my husband um, and I think you, th- there's the saying, you know, you can do anything that you set your mind to um, and I think people misinterpretate what that means um, mm. because they think that th- people would rather look at the obstructions in front of them than kind of how to overcome them if that makes sense. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that's very powerful. I like that one. Um, yeah, I definitely
0: agree with that. It's from a book I'm reading at the moment called Mindset by Carol Dweck. I would definitely recommend oh, it. Really, okay, really
1: that's going on my talks.
0: list. Yeah, it talks about growth mindsets and set mindsets. Um, but most importantly, that, you know, you can change your own yeah. mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's that's just once you realize that, I think only in the last few months I've realized when I have a negative thought, my brain automatically now which I'm so thankful for says uh-uh like yeah you're in control of that that doesn't have to be that way and yeah it takes time it takes practice but once you get there it's it's rewarding in so many ways definitely you can
1: really you can definitely train your mind to to think in any way you want want it to mm-hmm. think it's just it's just having that patience and the time to do it I think and that mm-hmm. that
0: education educating yourself constantly I like that one mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> good Our next one is only 56% of high school seniors in 2015 went out on dates for baby boomers and Gen Xers. The number was about 85%. So this was an American study published in the Atlantic about um, dating and courtship and how it's changed from the generation now to previous like the boomers and the Gen Xers. And apparently people now are dating less.
1: So I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm so lucky and grateful that I met David when I did because I say this all the time like I wouldn't have a clue what to do (laughs) on these dating apps um you know and I think it goes back to expectations I think social media um really paints a picture of what happiness what love what success should look like and I think if you stop living your life by other people's standards and live life by what really makes you happy then you know we live with people live their lives through their phone and I think you just need to take a step back and really think about what you want it, it but equally I don't judge anybody for that because I think it's just the generation that we're in and it, and it kind of makes me sad that um, what people are missing out on <laughs> yeah um, no it's almost like yeah. people forget people have forgotten how to h- hold a conversation with somebody
0: not through their <laughs> phone <laughs> but this is why it's interesting because previous generations this the article goes on to say how um previous generations the dialogue has changed so the baby boomers and the gen x has called it liking as in um, he likes you you're liking someone yes. whereas this generation call it talking i'm it <laughs> it's so ironic because most cool shit these days is over text anyway like yeah. you're not talking you're you're texting um yeah it's but it's all, just completely changed
1: Or cyber yeah it, it has and it's, it's just like I say I hope one day they find their ways back to you know just meeting in a pub or mm, <laughs> you know, I know. Just, imagine what rom-coms are going to be like what films are going to oh, be like God. in 10 years time there won't be any of these these, these kind of classic films anymore it'll all be kind of tinder related around tinder
0: <laughs> yeah but people can't even look you in the eye anymore like I if you were a restaurant
1: yeah yeah it's a confident thing that I think you know mm. David on a drunk night out in and I think I approached him um and I just don't think there's I think as well it's all about ego um and you know mm. kind of not wanting to I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I'm not obviously on the dating scene, but yeah, I think it's ego, and it's all kind of. There's always been kind of games within dating, but I think it's probably worse now. And I think people have a lot more options. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think there's so everybody's so accessible. So with, uh-huh. with online dating, you know, you you know, you're not just talking to one. You could be talking to twenty guys, whereas <sighs> you know. <laughs> yeah it's, I know. <laughs> it's
0: like being in a sweet shop as a kid yeah, so yeah, many yeah. too much choice, too much joy and they can't make a
1: decision
0: yeah yeah god a nightmare um so our final one is millennials are a generation that is frequently dismissed as narcissistic snowflakes who can't get to grips with adulting harsh words
1: <laughs> harsh but yeah, I'm kind of on the fence with that one because mm. I think it goes back again to, I mean, I don't think I'm in that category, but um, no. I think um, you. It goes back to social media, doesn't it? Like, I think you know, on sort like Instagram, for example, I don't follow, follow anybody famous. Uh, I think I follow mm. Joe Wicks, the body coach. I don't, I, and I purposely don't do that. I follow some like home accounts, like for inspiration, but and that's because I said it before. I don't want to live my life by anybody by anybody else's expectations like standards mm-hmm. or expectations and I think what happens is people look at um famous people on social media and they instantly think that that's how that's like I said before that's what success looks like that's what happiness looks like that's what mm-hmm. it looks like and if they don't have it Resentment built up, bitterness Mm. built up, and also a kind of chip on the shoulder of, you know, that's what I should have, and everything. You know, there's this fast, fast fashion, and everything's so accessible money wise now. uh, Things are a lot cheaper, and you know, there's there's uh, kind of finance. I think it's just a really tricky age to be at, where. Yeah. I want something. I can get it. Why shouldn't I have it? Kind of thing. So, Mm. but then equally, I get that it's it's hard to to live in a society that is potentially, or you know, appears very materialistic.
0: Yeah, I I also think the term millennial is far too broad because we're technically both millennials we are, we are. So our our experience of technology is completely different like i had instagram at school well latter years of school snapchat mainly in sixth form and instagram in sixth form but facebook like throughout my school um years and so there is this new phrase of called the i-gen which is the yeah. i generation which is from like 95 through to the the noughties um But yeah, like the term millennial is so, so broad. And the article does actually go on to say that we are also the most politically aware, ecologically minded, accepting, compassionate and emotionally literate generation um, whose lives have been fundamentally shaped by the digital revolution. So I quite liked that bit. And that's amazing, yeah. And I agree with
1: that. And I think that's amazing. And I think, you know, we've got to look at it in a positive way. And I think with technology, like I, again, I always say this to um david's dad because he's and he's approaching 17 he just doesn't get technology and i think you've got to be forward thinking i think the labels of millennials and IGen, i just i roll my eyes then because i just mm-hmm. it, it bothers me that you know nobody wants a label and i don't think we should you know the children are, are our future whether they're teenagers or young children now and i think putting them in a box is just going to build up resent, resentment and bitterness from them towards us. And I think it's just about forward thinking, you know, um, and embracing the changes, especially with technology that, you know, we're, we're experiencing. I had Facebook at uni. That's when it first, it was like 2006, 2007. So I went through kind of uh, MSN. <laughs> I was on MSN. Yeah. Messenger. And so, you know, I've, it's always been in my life. Um, but, yeah, it's just... I, it's it's a it's a interesting kind of it's going to be an interesting kind of next ten twenty years I think with with technology mm. and seeing um, how it all kind of develops.
0: Mm, yeah, for sure. Oh, Kirsty, this has been so great. Honestly, thank you so much for coming on with your realism and your honesty and your just amazing perspective on the world. It's been it's been an absolute delight to chat to you. It's been thank so lovely. you so much. I feel like we've covered a lot. <laughs>
1: thank
0: you I know so we much, have. So